This is the Feminine Podcast, the official podcast of Feminine, discussing all things femme, a little bit of EM, and everything in between. I'm Jenny Beck Esme, Editor-in-Chief of Feminine. For all of you out there, I want to say an incredible thank you, thank you, thank you for everything you've been doing over the last weeks and months in the middle of this COVID pandemic. And thank you for bearing with us as we took a little bit of a hiatus from some Feminine podcast content while we out here in New York were dealing with a bit of a crazy situation. I think it's time now to get us back on track and get you listening to a little bit of our Fix 19 content again. We're all sad that we're not going to be able to have a Fix 20, so we should live in this Fix 19 content and carry us through to Fix 21, where hopefully we can all be together again. Next up on the podcast is Dr. Rebecca Smith-Coggins. She's a practicing emergency medicine physician at Stanford University Medical Center and the Associate Dean for Medical Student Advising at the Stanford School of Medicine. She's kind of amazing and works for National Geographic and has been to all of the continents, all of them, including Antarctica, which I think is pretty fantastic. Her Fix 19 talk was a story of an encounter with a violent patient that resulted in a swing and a miss by the patient. And it really illustrates the need for a dramatic culture shift in how hospitals handle violence in the workplace. Even in a pandemic, this hasn't gone away entirely. So I think this is still really, really relevant. I hope you enjoy this talk and I hope you all stay well. It's so good to see you all. Today, I'm gonna walk with you through a very challenging day that I had when I found myself unexpectedly with a violent patient. How many people here have ever been with a violent patient? <laughs> the entire audience. It's pertinent. I was a young attending. I was working at a, a suburban hospital and I had a good life. Things were good at work, things were good at home. My husband and I had three young sons, and I know that all of my illustrations look like one of my sons did them, but they're actually my own scribbles. <laughs> On a particular day, a patient was triaged into room number six, our psychiatric room. And I went in to see him, and he was a pale, tremulous, muscular man. He was wringing his hands and rocking back and forth. And I asked him, he kind of conjured up this image of a metal spring tightly compressed under a heavy load. And I asked him, what brought you to the hospital today in an empathetic way? And he looked up at the ceiling and peered intently as if he was staring at a bizarre creature perched on a branch above us. And then he looked directly into my eyes and he said, you are carrying the devil's baby. And I ached for him, for his painful existence that he was boxed into by his troubled thinking. And yet I also sensed danger. What does this danger mean to us? Well, it's one of those things where we have escalating um, violence in our nation's emergency departments. And um, why is this? There are a lot of different reasons. One of them is possibly that we have a more weaponized society than before. We have escalating substance abuse, cheaper heroin, 
we have less resources for mental health care and, and honestly, more um, problems with, with actually fewer security measures for our people. So there's a lot of reasons why it's escalating. But back in room number six, I backed away from the patient, give myself a little bit of space, and get closer to the door. And like many of you, I have learned these behavioral mechanisms through trial and error. Because we weren't, teach, we weren't taught how to do this. We didn't learn de-escalation strategies in medical school. It would have been good if we had been. I mean, think if medical school curriculum had all of these de-escalation strategies in their curriculum. It would be very useful. Learning to stay two arm lengths away from a patient would be useful to know. Using a calm voice, paraphrasing, so that you repeat what the patient has just said, and it kind of makes them feel like they've been heard, and it allows you to slow the conversation down. Setting clear limits and behavioral boundaries so that your patients kind of know what's allowed and what isn't. Offering blankets and food, kind of acts of kindness sometimes can quiet an interaction down, but most importantly, staying close to the door. We all know that these interactions often remain peaceful, but sometimes violence erupts. So then this patient lunged off of the bed toward me, and out of my peripheral vision I saw his fist coming straight from my head. I ducked in the nick of time, raced out of the room, closed the door shut, and my eyes locked with the nurses. She quickly called security, and in a big city hospital, when security is called, it's followed by a quick sachet to the wall because guards come in, often from several directions at full tilt. But in this suburban hospital, it was customary for a uniformed guard to saunter in at a grandfather's pace. <laughs> How often does something like this happen in our emergency departments? Well, it's not really well known. There are not good data because there's no federal or state requirements for hospitals to collect this data. And it probably doesn't serve them well to do it voluntarily because it might scare patients away. So there's this unspoken disincentive to report violence. And it's a little short-sighted of hospitals because really if they participated in proactively trying to decrease violence, it would benefit hospitals, even if you only look at the costs, the savings that they would have. I mean, there are a lot of cost savings such as you know, less damage to their property fewer physician turnovers. There'd probably be less costs for mental health care for workers, et cetera. The silence outside room number six was broken by the patient's fist hitting the wire-reinforced window in the door. Over and over, he punched into that window and glass flew out into the hallway and blood fell onto the shiny linoleum. Where was that protector of ours? The sound of the flesh against the glass haunted me, and I actually had some problems with insomnia for a while after that. It's not surprising that physical assault 
threats of violence are problematic for us in a more, um, you know, mental, causes mental anguish. And it, it's been known to, show, to cause problems with um, sleep impairment, nightmares, um, PTSD, flashbacks, all of these have been shown. And it's kind of interesting, because when you've been the, in these, you don't even really think that you need any kind of therapy or help. You just kind of go on. And we're very good at denial, right? We busy ourselves taking care of everyone else, and we put our own needs at the bottom of our to-do list. For those of us who do realize that we could use some mental health care, the barriers are quite high. I mean, it's, we know a lot of people in the hospital because of our work, and to find a clinic where you feel safe and it's confidential is very difficult. It seems a little ironic. The other thing that is problematic is if we do leave and go to an appointment, we feel like we're inconveniencing our colleagues. And how about stigma? Is this gonna negatively impact our careers? Well, it's a reasonable concern since more than half of the states in the United States have questions on their medical licensing applications and reapplications asking us about prior mental health care diagnosis. Not a question, I'm not talking about questions that just say, do you have anything that might influence or impair your ability to take care of patients? That's reasonable. But this is about prior historical mental health care, our own privacy. We don't think about these kind of things when we go into medicine. We go into medicine, really, most of us, for the noblest of reasons. But those reasons sort of evaporate when we're in the midst of a violent situation. When did we sign up to put ourselves in harm's way? I mean, I don't remember ever knowingly signing on for those risks. Now, don't get me wrong, I would never trade away the look of gratitude on a mother's face when I've taken away the, the pain of her daughter by relocating an elbow or all the other things that we, we help people with. So what happened when the security officer finally got to room number six? Well, by then, the patient was, had a shard of glass that he had retrieved from the window, and he was digging deep into his flesh and the elbow and all the way down his forearm. The security officer quickly radioed for more help, and they stormed into the room and restrained the distressed patient. And I remember the sadness I felt as I watched him on the bloodied gurney getting wheeled off to the operating room for what turned out to be hours of hand and forearm surgery. It doesn't have to be like this. There are solutions, programs, resources that we can put in place that will render our emergency department safer for our patients as well as for us. Imagine what it would be like if there was a national mandate where every hospital had policies and procedures in place to take care of us on the front lines would look like needs assessment all over the hospital so that there would be reasons for setting up metal detectors and for um, de-escalation and uh, um, self-defense classes for everyone. Robust and well-funded security departments. 
retaliation-free reporting systems that we are encouraged to call, to call. That would be really a big improvement. Debriefing sessions that were automatic and happened the exact same day of the incidences. Opt-out mental health care for, pay, for those of us involved in situations. We would automatically have an appointment with a therapist and then it would behoove us to actually cancel it if we wanted it. And then removing those questions about our history on the med medical licensing applications. There are also solutions in the form of curriculum. This is a slide you might want to take a photo of because this link will take you to the curriculum that we developed at Stanford. And it has four different um, video scenarios and questions with them that will allow you to help teach de-escalation strategies. And this is another slide with a, a good, another photo op because this link will take you to the hot offload, which is a debriefing program that actually might be able to decrease the incidence of PTSD as a result of this. Violence must never be accepted as a part of our jobs. There are procedures and resources that will bring improvements for all, for patients, for hospitals, as well as ourselves. It's important for you all to go back to your institutions and advocate for safety. Did you see how common it is? Almost every one of you raised your hands. It's time for us to advocate for safety, for everyone's safety, so that we're no longer in harm's way. Thank you.